Good morning. Good morning. All right, well, you can please find your seats. I was just double checking something with my microphone. Give me one second. All right. Well, good morning and welcome back to our Answers Bible Curriculum Sunday School. We're moving on to a new unit today. We finished unit six last time, which took us to the end of the book of Exodus, but now we move into unit seven. Where are we gonna go in this unit over the next nine or 10 lessons? We're going to be actually finishing the Torah. We're going to go through the rest of the books of Moses, and we'll also go through the book of Joshua. By the time we come to the end of Unit 7, we will have Israel in the Promised Land, but they will also be making that transition into the dark period of the Judges. So things are going to get worse before they get better. But God is going to be doing something very important through all of that, and of course it's all written for our instruction. Today, we're stopping in the book of Numbers. We're going to hear about how Moses sent the spies to check out the land of Canaan, to check out the promised land. Remember, God promised to Abraham certain very important promises. It's part of that covenant God made with Abraham. It's often given in the shorthand as land, a seed, and blessing. Well, we have the multiplied seed. We're looking forward to the blessing, but where's the land? Well, Israel is about to come into their land, or are they? Today's lesson, we're going to see an account that reminds us about the importance of trusting God in the face of difficulty, the tragedy of missing out on God's blessing by unbelief and disobedience, and also the vindication of God for those who stand by faith in him, even when alone. All of this is wrapped up in this account of the spies and their report given to Israel. We have much to learn from this text. Let's ask our Lord to bless this time. Our Heavenly Father, your word is precious to us. We need it. It is our food, just as your word was food for Israel. I pray, God, that you help us to understand it, help me to be able to speak it and explain it. I pray that this will be a blessed time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your Bibles and open to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers 13 is where we find our account. Well, actually, the two chapters, Numbers 13 and 14. What happened to Israel since we last saw them at Mount Sinai? Well, let me give you a little bit of a summary. You may remember the book of Exodus ends with the completion of the tabernacle and God's presence, his visible presence, his glory cloud, it descends upon the tabernacle. And it's going to continue to remain on the tabernacle and it will also depart from their tabernacle to lead Israel through the wilderness and then settle back on the tabernacle again. So the tabernacle moves. They move on from Mount Sinai. The book of Leviticus, or well, just a moment before we move on from Mount Sinai, the book of Leviticus, it tells us some things we don't have to, time to examine in this course, but other laws for Israel as part of their covenant with God, the, the offerings that they are required or that are prescribed for them to bring to God, the duties that the priest must fulfill, what's clean and unclean for the Israelites, much of this is in the book of Leviticus. When we get to the book of Numbers, 
Numbers begins with numbers, which is why it has the name that we've given it. Numbers begins with the census of Israel's fighting men, how many men they have to go to war. Also outlines more regulations for Israel. By the time we get to Numbers 10, though, we see Israel on the move. Numbers 10, you can glance back there if you like. Numbers 10, verses 11 to 13, it says, Now in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they moved out for the first time according to the commandment of Yahweh through Moses. So after being at Mount Sinai for about 11 months, and this is more than a year since the Exodus has taken place, the Israelites leave Mount Sinai to follow God's cloud into the wilderness of Paran. Paran, by the way, appears to be the southwest, just southwest of Canaan or Palestine. So they're getting close. But as they go on the road again, as they travel to Paran, well, Israel quickly slips again into unbelief and complaint. But unlike earlier in Exodus, when they act this way before God, God now responds with holy chastening judgment. For example, in Numbers 11, the people complain about their adversities. They say, oh, it's really hard being out here in the wilderness. We're, we're tired of all this difficulty. And fire from God comes down and burns part of the camp of Israel. Later in the same chapter, some of the non-Israelites traveling up with Israel, they stir up Israel to complain about their food. Not even the lack of it, but the quality of it. With weeping, the Israelites declare that they're sick of manna and they want quail again. Well, God grants them quail, but he promises that they'll have so much of it that they'll get sick of it. And when the quail arrives, God also strikes down Israel's greedy rabble-rousers with plague. Now, this is a little different from what God did before. God is chastening. In Numbers 12, we see again sin against God and chastening. Aaron and Miriam, they complain against Moses. They assert that they should have the same amount of authority as their brother. As a result, God strikes Miriam with leprosy for seven days. And he declares that he and he alone has the right to choose his own prophet. Now, mind you, all of this is coming after what we've already studied together. Israel's receiving the covenant at Mount Sinai. God's sparing Israel in judgment multiple times, let alone all the deliverances and judgments of Egypt. God has even given them his tabernacle. He's dwelling among them in a very intimate way. And yet this is the way they act before God. The pattern of post-Sinai behavior looks awfully similar to the pattern of pre-Sinai behavior. In fact, it looks even worse. But now the people come to Canaan in Numbers 13. This is where we begin our account today. They're about to enter the land. Surely now Israel will have learned its lesson. Well, let's read what the chapter says. We'll read the whole chapter, Numbers 13, all at once. All along as I read, Numbers 13, down to the end of the chapter. It says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, the Lord there, Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, at the command of Yahweh, 
all of them men who were heads of the sons of Israel. These were their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. From the tribe of Joseph, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Zuzi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali. From the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vafsi. From the tribe of Gad, Guiel, son of Maki. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. But Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now, the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rahab at Labo Hamath. When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men, with some of the pomegranates and the figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying it out, it is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were. In their right, let's start our analysis of this account with basic observations on this first chapter. Notice in verse one, who is it that calls for spies to be sent to the land? Here, it says God did. God commands Moses to send out the spies. Then, when we get to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy one twenty-two says the request actually came from the people. People wanted spies to go out and look at the land. But the plan, that request, it meets God's approval and therefore Moses' approval. So, agreement all around. Let's send in the spies. 
Moses sends 12 spies to check out the land. 12, because there's one for each tribe. We have our, the spies' names noted in verses 4 to 16, very specific. Uh, this just emphasizes the historicity of this account. But notice what kind of men these spies are, according to verse 3. What kind of men? Heads, meaning what? These are leaders. These aren't just random Israelites off the street. These are leaders among the tribes. And so they are appropriately sent as representatives to go check out the land for each of the tribes. Moses tells the spies, notice in verses 17 to 20, to observe certain aspects of the land of Canaan. Basically, it comes down to three questions. First, what is the land and its produce like? Actually, three times Moses asks them, check out the land, check out the land, check out the land. So first, tell us about the land. Second, what kind of people live there and how many? And third, what kind of cities are there in the land? So tell us about the land, tell us about the people, tell us about the city. Notice where the spies go to accomplish their mission. The text says they went from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab near Lego Hamath. Well, I've given you a map on your screen. And you may notice certain significance about these two locations. What's the significance? Wilderness of Zin to Labo Hamath takes you through the whole land of Israel, takes you through all of Canaan. Actually, on the map there, the top location may have actually been a little bit further north. Seems to be some debate as to where those, where the northern extent was, but get the idea. This takes you through the whole land. It's a, They're going to get a good view of all of Palestine. The spies also specifically stopped in Hebron and the Valley of Eshkol, and they pick up some fruit, some grapes, some pomegranates, some figs. Notice in verse 22, though, what about the inhabitants of Hebron stands out to the spies? Notice that their sons of Anak were living there. And according to verse 33, what trait stands out about the descendants of Anak? They're large. They are great men. We are like grasshoppers in their sight, the spies say. Notice verse 27. Verse 27, we have a figure of speech that the spies used to describe the land. They said, it is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is a phrase that actually God had been using about the land before the spies entered. They said, the land I'm taking, taking you to is a land of flowing with milk and honey. But we should not take that phrase literally. It's not as if there are rivers of honey and rivers of milk bubbling up from the ground. So what does this phrase indicate? Right, this is a term of abundance. And notice right after they say that in verse 27, it is indeed land flowing with milk and honey. And then they talk about the fruit and, and some of the, the abundance of the land. So it is, a, it is a term, milk and honey were certainly valued resources. They were associated with abundance. It says this is a land of abundance. Also interesting though, those substances, they are, they would be associated with a pastoral type economy. I've, I mentioned in a recent email 
to the Calvary members that I'm taking a class on the geography of Israel right now. And it's been interesting to discover that though parts of the land of Israel, the parts of the land of Canaan are very well suited to agriculture, most of it is not. Most of it is actually very well suited to herding animals. It's very good for a pastoral type economy. So this phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey, not only does it emphasize abundance, but it also emphasizes that, hey, the kind of economy that we're really looking for and that we're really used to as shepherders or as shepherds and cattle herders, etc., as the people of Israel, this land is particularly well suited for us. And this is what the spies verify. And notice in verse 25 how long the spies are in the land. It says that they are there for 40 days. And we can summarize the spies' report to Moses in verses 25 to 29 by coming back to his three questions. What is the land like? Well, it's awesome. It's very abundant. It's just as God promised. What are the people like? Well, they're big and strong. What are the cities like? They're large and fortified. Now, as the people report this, notice Caleb's response to it in verse 30. He's one of the spies, and he says, basically, let's go get it. We will surely overcome these large people and their large and defended cities. But what do the other spies say? We are not able to take the land. And they spread a discouraging report among the people of Israel. They emphasize to the people all the obstacles, but they do not at all emphasize the land's bounty. All right, now that we've made these observations on the text, let's ask a few questions of interpretation. Always start with observation and then go to interpretation. So here's the first question. Why might God have wanted Israel to send spies into the land? What do you think? On the one hand, you might think, well, if they're going to see all this discouraging stuff about the strong people, well, should they not? Would it be better if they didn't know about that? Why did God send the spies? Okay, in one sense, it's going to prepare the people, but let's be more specific. How, how is he going to prepare the people? Or what is he looking to accomplish in preparation? Say that again. Yes, certainly this is a test of whether the people will trust the Lord. He knows that there are strong and difficult obstacles in the land, but this is an opportunity for them to trust him. They see it all beforehand. They know what's coming, so they're going to have to trust God. But of course, it's not just difficulties in the land. They also hear about its abundance. And why would that be good for them to know? That's right. This should get them excited. This should provoke the response that we hear from Caleb in verse 30. Yes, it's a great land. Let's go up and get it. So multiple reasons are probably at play here. This is the Lord testing Israel. It's, he's showing them that it is a good land. He's verifying his promises. He wants to get them excited about it. But of course, in God's grander purposes, as we'll see, this will be part of God cleansing an unbelieving generation. Another question. Why did the majority of the spies say that Israel was not able to take possession of the land? What were they focusing on? They're focusing on the people that would have to be overcome, focusing on the difficulties 
And as they examined those things, they did not look to God's power, but what? Their own power. They considered their own resources. They considered their number, number of soldiers, their military abilities. And they say, well, we've done the analysis. We can't do it. We're not going to be able to overcome these, these people. Look at their strength. Look at our strength. We can't do it. And from a human perspective, the fortified cities and the mighty warriors of Canaan, they indeed do look like too much for Israel to handle. But Israel is once again confusing the means of accomplishing something with the actual power to accomplish it. Yes, Israel's fighting men going into battle would be the means of attaining the land, but that was not the source of their power. God and his power was what was going to give them the land. And it's not as if God has been unclear about this up to this point in communicating with Israel. It didn't, it's not like God said to the people or communicated, implied to the people, look, I'll bring you to the promised land, but then it's all up to you. God hasn't been saying that. Rather, what has the Lord been saying up to this point? Exodus 23, 23, to give you a few examples, God says, for my angel will go before you. And bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. Who will? God will. Or just a few verses down in Exodus 23. Exodus 23, verse 31. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you will drive them out before you. In Exodus 33, Exodus 33, verses 1 to 2. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And this is just a sample of verses. God has made it clear to Israel over and over that he, not they, would obtain the land for them. Now, will Israel still have to go and fight battles? Yes. Will the Israelite men have to work hard, diligently train in warfare? Yes. But their strength and their martial skill, they were only means that God would use to provide victory. The actual power was still all God. They can train all they want. If God doesn't provide the victory, they won't win. Or they could not train at all. And if God determined to give them the victory, they would win. And sometimes we actually see this, this point made more explicit for Israel because God overrides the normal means of providing victory, and he instead intervenes miraculously. God shows again and again that he's the one that gives or withholds victory. He's calling on his people, therefore, to trust him and go fight the battle. Now, these promises and many supporting evidence, they were known to the 12 spies. Again, these are not Joe Schmoes in Israel. They are leaders. They saw God deliver miraculously in Egypt and at the Red Sea and through the wilderness. They did not suffer any lack of information or assurance from God. So why didn't they believe? Why didn't they believe in God's power? It wasn't due to a lack of information, but what? Hard hearts. 
lack of faith. They were choosing to indulge the flesh in unbelief rather than do the difficult thing and trust God. You see, in a strange way, and, and I think you can verify this in your own experience as a Christian, it feels good to the sinful flesh to fear. It feels good to that sin principle in us to blame God for not providing well enough, to run away from the challenges that God has set before you, to doubt, to complain, to just stay with what you already know. We think of fear being a very negative emotion, and it is. It's very unpleasant, but in a way, it feels good to the flesh, to the sinful flesh, because sin allows you to build yourself up at God's expense. When you give in to fear, to doubt, you say, oh, but look at poor me. God hasn't provided for me. Life is so hard for me. You are really exalting yourself, even in your sinful fear. And it's this kind of fear to which the spies going into the land were yielding in their flesh. Their fear-mongering was really a cloak for their pride of heart and really for their worship of the treasures of the world. When put to the test, these spies, the majority of them, they pursued the joy of rebellion against God rather than the greater and the life-giving joy of faith in and love for God. It wasn't due to a lack of information. It was due to hardness of heart and really a love for sin. And what is the result? They're now using man's wisdom. They're now indulging the flesh, not believing God. What was the result for them and for Israel? Let's look at the next chapter. Numbers 14. We'll read the entire chapter once again. Follow with me. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If Yahweh is pleased with us, then he will bring us into the land to give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Their protection has been removed from them, and Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of Yahweh appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Yahweh said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to Yahweh, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength you brought up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Yahweh, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Yahweh, are seen eye to eye. While your cloud stands over them, 
and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because Yahweh could not bring them, bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. Yahweh is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So Yahweh said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys, turn tomorrow, and set out to the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says Yahweh, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for forty years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, forty days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even forty years and you will know my opposition. I, Yahweh, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. As for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land, even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by a plague before Yahweh. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive out of those men who, who went to spy out the land. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which Yahweh has promised. And Moses said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of Yahweh when it will not succeed? not go up, or you will be struck down before your enemies, for Yahweh is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you, and you will fall by the sword, inasmuch as you have turned back from following Yahweh, and Yahweh will not be with you. 
But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the Ark of the Covenant or Yahweh, uh, Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh nor Moses left the camp. And the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Horma. Oh, complete disaster. Let's make some observations on this part of the account. So how does Israel respond to the bad report they were given in the previous chapter? Verses 1 to 4, we see they weep, they despair, they complain. They call for a new leader to take them back to Egypt. But how do Aaron and Moses respond to what the people are doing? In verse 5, we see that they fall on their faces. And Caleb and Joshua, these two spies who went out to the land, they tear their clothes, which is a sign of great uh, grief and troubled soul. They tear their clothes and they try and reason with the people. And notice their argument in verses 7 to 9. They say, if it pleases God and if we obey him, then we will be victorious in conquest, for God will be with us. Don't worry about how strong they look. We have Yahweh. But how well is their argument received? Not very well. The people call for their stoning. It's they kill those men who are telling us that we can go up to the land and Yahweh will give it to us. It's actually only the appearance, appearance of God's glory above their tabernacle that prevents these men from being killed. But when God appears, God declares to Moses, I got to destroy Israel. They're just so wicked. I got to destroy them and restart with you. But Moses intercedes for the Israelites, these wicked Israelites, and he asks God to pardon them. Does that sound familiar? Notice the basis of Moses' appeal in verses 13 and 19. He appeals to the glory of God. He says, if you destroy Israel, others will misunderstand and they'll malign your name. They'll say that it's because you could not bring them into the land that you destroyed them. Moses also appeals to the character of God. The section he gives there, supporting God's loving kindness and his forgiveness, but also his refusal to leave the guilty unpunished, that is a quotation of what God himself declared about himself back in the book of Exodus. When God showed Moses his glory, he also declared his name to Moses, and he said these very things. I am a God of abundant loving kindness, but I will no, by mo no means leave the guilty unpunished. So Moses appeals to that revealed character of God. He says, Lord, this is who you are. Yahweh, you are full of loving kindness, and you do pardon and you've shown that loving kindness continually to this people since they've left Egypt. So please, show it again. Pardon your people. Now again, does this sound a little bit familiar? This kind of argument? This kind of appeal? Where did we see almost the same thing play out? Exactly what, or almost exactly what Moses said when Israel sinned with the golden calf. Yahweh again said, I need to destroy this people. They are so wicked. But Moses says, but Yahweh, your glory, Yahweh, your name, Yahweh, show loving kindness, please. And once again, God heeds Moses' request. He gives pardon to the people, but he declares, I will make my glory known. So God also, like he did with the golden calf incident, he gives a restrained, but still a serious judgment on Israel because of their sin. Does God declare? Israel will now wander for 40 years in the wilderness, and everyone who is 20 years old and older will die. 
Why 40 years? Verse 34 tells us, one year for each day that the spies were in Canaan. And what is the irony of this judgment? That all the people will perish in the wilderness. It's what they feared, and actually, in a sense, what they requested. Remember when they complained against Yahweh, they say, wouldn't it have been better to just die in the wilderness? And Yahweh says, according to what you said, I will do. You won't believe me? I'll give you what you asked for. You don't want the land. You'd rather die in the wilderness. That's what I'll give you. You will now all die in the wilderness. And the next generation will go in. The very generation that you feared would perish at the hands of your enemies, they'll go in. But you will die in the wilderness. So there's a certain poetic justice in this judgment. Notice the exceptions, though, to this judgment. God says Joshua and Caleb will go in because they believed me. They have a right spirit, different spirit than the others. What happened to the 10 disbelieving spies? They didn't even get to go into the wilderness. They were killed instantly with plague. And I think of Jesus' words in Matthew 18, 6, because consider what these spies did, how they led the people of Israel into sin. And Jesus says, it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck and to be tossed into the sea and to cause one of God's children to sin. See how serious God is with those who lead and tempt others to sin. God commands Israel to return into the wilderness to begin their 40 years of wandering. What do the Israelites do instead? They try to go into Canaan. They say, oh, you're right. We sinned. We're sorry. But here we are. We're ready to go in. Moses warned them, don't try to go in there. God won't be with you. What do the people do? They don't listen. And they end up being defeated in battle. A number of them are slain as Israel retreats. By the way, God mentions that this is the 10th time that Israel has tested him. Now, some people take that to mean, oh, he just means that this is like a, a culminating time. But actually, it could refer to 10 literal times. And I think that probably is the sense here. Sorry if this writing is a little bit small. But if we don't count Israel complaining against Aaron and Moses while Israel was still in Egypt, and if we also don't count individual rebellions against Yahweh, like Nadab and Abihu or Miriam, and Aaron rebelling against Moses, then this would indeed be the 10th time that Israel has tested God. You can see the other ones uh, listed there on the PowerPoint. I won't go through each one of those, but look at all the times that they've tested Yahweh. Many of them, God didn't do any sort of punishment in response. Then he gave them his covenant at Sinai. They still kept testing Yahweh. He began to chasten them. He says, all right, you didn't listen to me when I was just gracious to you. Now, according to covenant, I will punish you according to your sin. And they still didn't listen. And now this 10th time, where they were, the people as a whole refusing to go into the land, God says, had enough. This unbelieving generation, it's going to perish in the wilderness. This is another reason why we understand we are not to test the Lord. All right. Now that we've made observations in the second part of the passage, let's ask some interpretation questions. All right. First. What attributes of God are on display in this passage? Go ahead, one. Right. His, he is a God of wrath. He is a God of holy judgment. So his holiness, his wrath, there's justice associated with that, and yet mercy. Same thing as with the golden calf incident, right? 
even though he's giving judgment, it is far restrained compared to what the people actually deserve. So we're seeing, indeed, the loving kindness of God, but also, as he declares, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. What else do we see? Very true. He is long-suffering. He is patient. He has not only granted them pardon here, but this is after a series of testings against Yahweh. And yet he still is restraining himself from from doing to them as they deserve, deserve. What else? Notice that he is a faithful provider and deliverer. Two men stood up for Yahweh at the risk of their own lives. And Yahweh vindicated them. Caleb and Joshua were about to be killed because they were doing the right thing. But Yahweh not only protected their lives, but he said, when the rest of the congregation is judged, they will not be, because they believed me. Doesn't God, throughout the scriptures, promise, I will take care of my people, and I will vindicate those who trust in me. Not all of them are spared from death, as these two men are, temporarily. But God says, one way or another, they will be vindicated. When they come to be with me after death, and when they come back to reign on the earth, or even before then, I will take care of and vindicate those who believe in me. And see, again, also, God's glory on display in this passage. Moses rightfully appeals to God's glory when looking to intercede for the people. No one else in the universe deserves the love and glory that Yahweh does. And God is jealous for his glory. And that's why he acts in wrath and in justice. Not in justice, but in actual justice. When the people spurned him. And when they defame him. So God is very much putting himself on display in this passage. But we also see a profound truth in this passage. We see the consequences of sin and unbelief in God. It does bring judgment, but that's not the only thing. What else is a consequence of sin that is very clearly put on display in this passage? Okay, that's true. We, we do see the Lord disciplining, chastening his people. He's not annihilated them. He's not destroyed them. Whether this is uh, a judgment and, and, and a chastening unto repentance, okay, I can see that. But these people are not going back into the land. There's a certain finality in this declaration from Yahweh. So it is true, though, certainly we know from the rest of the scriptures, even for those who do belong to Yahweh, even for those he's, he has sworn, I will not ultimately judge you, there is the chastening of the Lord that you might experience. Now, part of that chastening or even part of that punitive judgment is not just suffering negative consequences. These men and their generation, they're all going to die in the wilderness. But notice what they missed out on. This is another part of the judgment of God and another consequence of sin. It is the missing out on God's blessing. Consider how painful this aspect of the judgment would have been to the people. 
they were very close to the promised land, the wilderness of Paran, the, the place of Kadesh Barnea. It's just below the Negev. It's just below the land of Palestine. So they're so close. They even hear a report about the land that it's good. It's abundant. It's perfectly suited for them. But now God has forbidden them from going in or even seeing it. And this is always true of sin. God holds out to us his way of wisdom, his way of life, provision, blessing. But when we reject it, not only does God ultimately punish such crimes for his own glory, and for those who don't repent, it will be an eternity in hell, but he also withholds that which he would otherwise freely have given to us. Sin causes us to miss out on the best part of life. Walking with the Lord, experience, experiencing him and experiencing his blessing. There's a phrase, it's not quite as popular these days, but certainly in the last decade or so, it was had a lot of use. It's the phrase FOMO. You ever feel FOMO? And FOMO is fear of missing out. In our very digital age, the internet, you see what other people are doing or something that you could buy or some experience happening somewhere in the world and, oh, you feel like you're missing out or you don't want to miss out. There's a, there's a temptation to feel like you're missing out on what you see. And as Christians, we're often tempted to have FOMO or fear of missing out when it comes to not following the world or not engaging in some sin. We think maybe we're missing out on something good. But actually, the truth is the opposite. You don't miss out by following God. You miss out by following the world. In a sense, if you follow God, the thing you'll miss out on is the judgment and chastening of God. But if you follow the world, you miss out on God's abundant life. You miss out on everlasting life. So my brothers and sisters, I do want to emphasize this point to you today because I believe it's one of the main themes of our passage. Sin not only brings judgment, but it causes you to miss out on God and all his good blessings, both temporally but also eternally. If you will not repent, you will miss out eternally. And this is why the writer of Hebrews gives the warnings that he does throughout his book, especially in chapter 3, verse 12 to chapter 4, verse 2, the writer of Hebrews. I won't take the time to walk you through that passage right now, but just summarize the argument of the writer of Hebrews there in Hebrews 3. He says, Israel missed out on God's rest in the promised land due to their unbelief. And you know what? The writer says, so will you if you fall away from Christ. Therefore, do not let your hearts be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but believe in the Lord. This experience of Israel and totally missing out on the promised land, this first generation, it is very informative to us about on how we will miss out if we choose to follow sin, if we choose to indulge the flesh as they did, we will miss out on something much more serious. So with that in mind, I think we can see the purpose of these two chapters in Numbers. What is the purpose of this account? What is Moses communicating to Israel and to us? How are we supposed to be affected? Clearly, we are not to be like unbelieving Israel who missed out and was judged. We are to be like faithful Joshua and Caleb and Aaron and Moses who believe the Lord 
and we're blessed. You know, sometimes we think of, or we might think of, the Old Testament as merely a history of the failures of God's people again and again. And indeed, that is a large part of it. And we might be tempted to say, well, you know, this is just who we are as God's people. Even as believers, lovers of God, we continually fail, always fail, need God's grace. Well, we certainly don't follow the Lord as we ought, and we do need God's grace. But let's not miss that the Old Testament is not just a record of failure, but it is also a record of faith. Certain righteous ones, a remnant who persevered by faith. They slipped at times, but their lives are characterized by proven faith and righteousness. Do you know what? They were blessed for it. So brothers and sisters, it is possible to walk by faith in Yahweh. Not perfectly, but in a characteristic way and in an increasing way. As believers, we are not simply doomed to fail. That's one of the great truths of the scripture, especially in Romans 5 and 6, right? We're not slaves to sin anymore. We've been called and enabled by God to live holy, God-pleasing, and God-believing lives. That's really what it means to be a Christian. And if we cannot do this, if we cannot live by faith, if we doubt again and again, or every time God tests us, we just fail and fail, if we never grow, if we never progress in faith, then we need to examine ourselves as to whether we have any faith at all whether we even belong to Christ, because the righteous live by faith. You know who else never progressed, who were tested again and again, and they always failed? First generation of Israel. And what did God say, for, say about them? In the psalm, actually, God says it in a very memorable way. I forgot to write down the, the psalm, but it's the one that the writer of Hebrews is quoting. He says, I was not pleased with that first generation, and I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. You know, it's interesting, from my exegesis of Hebrew class, I learned a little bit more about that, that phrase from the original psalm. Literally, it is, if they ever enter my rest, and then it just stops. Like, uh, oh, God, what are you saying? It, that's a kind of a fragment, isn't it? It's one of those things that's characteristic of Hebrew. When, you, when you're going to give an oath, or sometimes a curse, you don't even finish it. You just... Basically, you've implied the rest of the statement. God says, if I ever let that unbelieving generation that never progressed enter into my rest, then let me be destroyed. Basically, let, let a curse come down upon me if I ever let that happen. Be strong, right? God says, that's, that's how I feel. That's, that's what I think in my heart about a people that will Test me and test and test me, always doubt, never learn, never regret. And the writer of Hebrews says, that's what Yahweh said about the first generation. What if that's true about us? If we find ourselves acting like Israel, well, then we're going to miss out like Israel did. It's a very sobering realization. So if we do find ourselves acting like Israel, we need to examine our hearts. We need to let the scriptures examine us, and we need to repent. Because we are in danger of missing out on God's rest, even his eternal rest, by our unbelief. And isn't this what Pastor Bobby has been saying? I've enjoyed listening to his, his first sermons on Second Peter, but our pastor has said it. If we don't grow, if there's no growth, there's no life. 
we're not progressing in faith, if we're not progressing in holiness, there's probably no life in there. So what about you? Ask yourself this morning, let the word cut into your soul and spirit. Are you like the first generation of Israel? Or are you like Joshua and Caleb? Do you just keep testing the Lord, never really exercising or progressing in faith? Or do you stand up for the Lord? Do you wait for his vindication? Do you believe there will be a blessing to those who have faith in Yahweh? Consider your life challenges. And we're, we're into application now at this point. Consider the challenges that you're encountering right now in your life. Obstacles that lay before you. When it comes to evangelism, or sanctification, or some other thing that God has commanded you to do and, and you feel that it's difficult. How do you respond to that obstacle? Do you believe in the many times proven word of Yahweh? Or do you do as the ten wicked spies who just looked at the strength and wisdom of the flesh? I don't know the different obstacles you're facing. I don't know the different challenges. But how do you respond? We're to learn from Israel's experience. We can believe the Lord. We sometimes feel like we haven't been given enough information, haven't been given enough resources, but we have, as again, as pastors emphasize just from the beginning of the second book of Second Peter, he, Christ has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through his divine power. He's granted us all those promises through the, the true knowledge of him. We have all that we need. So do we live like it? Do you trust in the power, and the wisdom, and the kindness of God as you pursue obedience? Do you believe that the God is able to give you victory against giants and fortresses, figuratively speaking? Do you believe there is reward and a rest for those who are faithful? I urge you, just as I urge myself, believe the Lord. Experience his reward, the joy of pleasing him and walking with him. Do not settle for the temporary, lesser, and ultimately judgment-bringing enjoyment that is in the indulgence of the flesh. Yeah, sin does feel good, but it brings regret with it, and it brings judgment with it. Much better, much wiser to follow God's way, experience the blessing that comes with walking with God now, and the blessing that comes with walking with him later. That is, the blessing that comes later. So I do urge you to think about that as we, as we go on for today. Let this lesson stay in your minds. Questions about what you heard today? Thank you. Yes, that's the one. That's a great question. So, thank you.
Thank you for bringing up the psalm. Psalm 95 is the one making comments about that first generation and referred to by the writer of Hebrews. And yeah, he says that he loathed that generation for 40 years. And I think we have to just take it straight up. God says, I did not love that generation. I was angry with them. I hated them. You say, but, but they're the people of Israel. Well, there's a sense that for Abraham's sake, God did show love and mercy and patience to the people. But that unbelieving generation, I don't know if we have much hope for their inheritance in heaven and their inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. It's not like for most of them that in the wilderness they repented and they were true followers of Yahweh. We're going to see that even when Israel goes back into the wilderness, they still sin against God. They still rebel. So I think what the psalmist and really the Lord's Spirit is saying is that that, that generation, even after that terrible judgment, they still didn't progress. And that's why God says, I, I loathe them. I loathe them their whole time that they were in the wilderness. As each one of them died, I still had no, I, I was not going to give them an eternal inheritance. And again, that's even more sobering. It gives even more weight to when God says, they shall never enter my rest, not temporarily and even not in an eternal way. Good question. Other questions? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's true. And I'm, I'm very glad you said that, Danny, because that reminds me again of what the writer of Hebrew says. I'm actually getting a little bit of goosebumps thinking about it because it's so sobering. Just to repeat your comment. You talked about how the people of Israel had so much light, so much revelation and grace and provision from God so that they would be enabled to believe in him. What does the writer of Hebrews say? Consider how much more light we have as those who are experiencing the new covenant uh, ministry of Christ, as those who've seen the Lord's Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh, revealed to us by his apostles. If we spurn this one, how much greater of a judgment will we receive? If they were forever forbidden from entering God's rest because of their spurning of light, how much more so we? Of course, the writer of Hebrews, in, that, in the immediate context, he's referring to Christians in his own day thinking about, okay, this persecution is difficult. Maybe I'm not going to be a follower of the Lord. I'm just going to kind of hide in Judaism for a little while. I'm going to temporarily draw back from following Christ. He says, if you do that, you're being just like the people of Israel, and yet you have so much greater of a revelation than they did. Don't turn back. If you do, you might never be able to go into God's rest. He might judge you the same way he judged Israel, but in an even more intense way. So, yeah, very, very sobering realities that we we want to understand the the sobering part, the negative side, which is don't risk testing the Lord, but also the positive side. Think of the blessing that was promised to Caleb and Joshua and think of in the writer of Hebrews, the blessing that is promised to all those who are in Christ. We have a rest coming. We have a greater high priest. We have an intercessor. We have total forgiveness of sins. Things are way better 
than anything anyone even had under the old covenant. So for the sake of the positive, then, we also want to believe the Lord and follow after him. Well, I hope you'll continue to meditate on this passage. That's it for this week. If you have other questions, please email me. Next week, we take a look at some notable events in the wilderness wandering. As I said, despite God's patience and even the judgment he's already expressed against Israel at this point, Israel still will test the Lord in the wilderness. And how will God respond? And what are we to learn? Talk about that next time. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is meant to sober us, but also to give us hope. You are a God that can be believed. We are obligated to believe. It is our duty, and yet it is our joy if we rightly understand it. God, help us to walk in faith and obedience, trusting that you will vindicate us in the right way in the right time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.